When I tell people who've known me for some time that I've been doing a radio show, they'll sometimes ask, oh, is it about medicine? Which is, I guess, a logical assumption, having invested all that time to earn an MD degree, one would assume that I'd be putting it to good use here on the airwaves. But alas, a regular listener will note that we don't, uh, we don't dwell on medical issues that much. This is in part due to the fact that um, when it comes to issues in health and medicine, it's often not very clear-cut as to what the facts may be in a case. And uh, we get tired of articles saying, you know, X may indicate Y. And I must confess that uh, with all the interesting things that are going on in the world, questions of health and medicine are oftentimes, well, just not the most interesting. And we talk about, uh, well, devious matters in, in, in politics and where politics meets the environment and things like that. Well, we consider that to be dealing with matters of health indirectly. But we've decided to take a huge backlog of materials related to health, medicine, and the environment and put them all in one show. Where shall we begin? I guess we should wade into that battleground, and that's really what it is, involving questions of health and diet. Let's start with the battle over sugar. A while back, actually it was on July 23rd, there was an op-ed piece in the Sacramento Bee by Robert Lustig and Michael Gorin. Robert Lustig is Professor of Pediatrics and Director of the Weight Assessment for Teen and Child Health Program at UC San Francisco. Michael Gorin is a Professor of Preventative Medicine and and Pediatrics and holds an endowed chair in Childhood Obesity and Diabetes at Keck School of Medicine, University of Southern California. Pretty incendiary piece, and I think we'll quote from it. Starts out noting that Upton Sinclair once said it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. The author said that's certainly the case with the beverage industry's aggressive efforts to recruit quasi-nutritionists to promote their ridiculous and scientifically disproven arguments. For example, that eating fruit has the same effect on the human body as drinking a soda. By paying academics to be their spokesmen, trade groups representing the food and beverage industry are reviving a decades-old propaganda ploy, similar to when tobacco giants paid doctors and other, quote, experts, unquote, to promote cigarettes. This isn't an anomaly. The practice is becoming endemic. Earlier this month, Liz Applegate, a UC Davis lecturer and American Beverage Association advisor, published an op-ed piece in the Sacramento Bee parroting industry talking points. Another recent example is James Ripple of the University of Central Florida, who was paid $500,000 a year by the Corn Refiners Association to publish commentaries in newspapers and academic journals. Not only do beverage companies spend billions to deceptively market their products, they also spend millions commissioning biased research and paying, quote, scientific advisors, unquote. These shills spread the claim that a calorie is a calorie and sugar is sugar, as if it doesn't matter whether your child eats a balanced diet or only drinks sugar water. Don't be deceived. As directors of major obesity and diabetes research programs who don't take industry money, we want to set the record straight. More than 20 years of peer-reviewed scientific research has pinpointed sugary drinks, whether sweetened with sucrose or high fructose corn syrup, as a primary contributor to type 2 diabetes, especially in children. While we'd all agree that there are other contributions, added sugars in beverages has emerged as the leading and most preventable risk factor. Over the past 30 years, diabetes rates have more than tripled. 
Today, one quarter of teens have diabetes or prediabetes, twice the rate of just 10 years ago. It's no coincidence that two-thirds of teens have a soda, energy, or sports drink every day. Sugary drink consumption leads to fatty liver disease and insulin resistance, two contributors to the development of type 2 diabetes. Drinking a soda a day for six months increases liver fat by almost 150% in just eight weeks. Sugary beverages are particularly harmful for several reasons. First, they contain an enormous amount of sugar, 16 teaspoons per 20 ounces. That contributes to weight gain, which is tied to diabetes. Second, by lacking any nutrients like protein, fat, or fiber that slow the body's absorption of these sugars, soft drinks lead to massive spikes in both glucose and fructose, the two sugars that make up sucrose and high fructose corn syrup. Repeated spikes in blood glucose requires the pancreas to secrete high levels of insulin. The massive infusion of fructose is converted into fat by the liver, similar to how alcohol is metabolized. Fatty liver increases insulin resistance and inflammation, which in turn forces the pancreas to produce even more insulin. Over time, the pancreas becomes exhausted and wears out, which leads to diabetes. Are apples really as harmful as a soda? Of course not. A soda has roughly three times more sugar, and since soda has no nutrients to be digested, it is absorbed immediately, spiking insulin and fattening up the liver. An apple, on the other hand, contains fiber, so it is absorbed slowly, giving your liver a chance to catch up. They conclude by noting it's time for California to tune out beverage industry propaganda and tune into the hard science showing how sugary beverages contribute to Californians' bad health and rising health care costs. It is time for the beverage industry to stop paying off scientists, and it's time we all learn the truth about the harmful effects of sugary drinks. We mentioned some time back we may need to get Robert Lustig on this program to amplify these remarks. Not that they need to be amplified, uh, perhaps, because they're pretty clearly stated. This certainly dovetails with a stat we mentioned a while back, which is that more than two-thirds of Americans, 17 to 24, would fail to qualify for military service because they're too unhealthy, lack a high school diploma, or have felony convictions, or are taking prescription drugs for conditions like ADD. So how much of that's from obesity? We're not quite sure, but there is an epidemic going on. Others would say that the U.S. obesity epidemic may be due more to sloth than greed. This was talked about in the show some weeks back. Analysis of health surveys found increases in obesity and inactivity, but not in calories over the past couple decades. This might be a good time to take a turn back to 2012, when some good news uh, regarding obesity hit the scene. Some studies done in Sweden showed that just one hour of exercise instantly changed our genes to boost the breakdown of fat. Researchers at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm looked for epigenetic changes, the addition of methyl groups to genes in muscle cells during strenuous exercise. They did this by collecting biopsies. Turned out that several genes involved in fat metabolism that were methylated before the exercise lost their methyl groups. This demethylation allows genes to more easily make proteins, which suggests that more proteins involved in the breakdown of fat are being made after exercise. The group was surprised to see how these effects happened so quickly. They theorized that calcium produced in muscle cells during exercise may be involved since subjecting the same biopsies to caffeine, which also increases calcium in muscles, caused the same demethylation. Researchers did add, however, that you would get caffeine intoxication, unfortunately, before you gain the same effects from coffee as from an hour-long workout. 
And speaking of caffeine, we've joked in this program many times over the years that if they would put the cocaine back in Coca-Cola, it'd be a better beverage. Well, sadly, that's been proven by a fatality in Ohio. Evidently, um, this spring, an 18-year-old Ohio student died after having cardiac arrhythmias and a seizure. Turns out the medical examiner found that an autopsy, the young man had overdosed on caffeine powder. He apparently had 70 micrograms of caffeine per milliliter of blood. By comparison, the usual coffee drinker would have three to five micrograms of caffeine in the blood. It's noted that caffeine powder is now widely available in the U.S. and has grown increasingly popular among teens. It's sold as a dietary supplement and therefore not subject to the same FDA guidelines as caffeinated drinks, which is insane. We surely don't profess to be experts on this, but it seems that the therapeutic index of caffeine compared to cocaine makes it the more dangerous drug. Not that we're advocating cocaine use, but if you do go to South America and drink mate de coca, which is made with boiled coca leaves, you'll get a similar lift to the effect of a cup of coffee. Apparently, it's less dangerous. And some other bad news related to teens, it turns out that experimentation with human growth hormone by America's teenagers has more than doubled in the past year. As more young people look to drugs to boost their athletic performance and improve their looks, according to a new large-scale national study. This is not a good idea. If you have too much human growth hormone, you have a condition called acromegaly. A lot of old movie villains were afflicted with this condition. It gave them a very sinister and bizarre appearance. And I just, I don't know, this just blows my mind. I suppose like steroids on an athletic performance level, it must give people a boost, but man, what a risk. Something else we've um, taken a stand against on this program is um, those good people over at the Drug Enforcement Agency that want to play doctor and are so concerned about the, the use of pain prescriptions in this country. We had a situation develop over the years where the, the DEA made it so hard to get prescriptions to write for controlled substances that people across the country were being vastly under-medicated. I'm talking about people that had chronic pain, people with cancer pain, people with people who were dying in pain, who weren't being relieved. Finally, people stepped in and said, look, you doctors have an obligation to treat pain. This, this, this arose in part from a lawsuit. We often uh, like to bag on our colleagues in the legal profession, but some good did come out of that lawsuit, that's for sure. Now there are some that want the pendulum to swing back in the other direction. They talk about the epidemic of prescription drug abuse in this country, and there may be something to that. Well, there is something to that, I think, because the Wall Street Journal has reported that in 11 states, there were more than 100 prescriptions for opioid painkillers like Vicodin and Oxycontin written for every 100 adults. Yes, an average of one such prescription per person. I think it's fair to say they got a problem in 11 states. We're wondering one of them is Florida, where Rush Limbaugh lives. Remember, remember him getting busted with 10,000 Oxycontin? And not only was he not convicted of being a dealer, he was not prosecuted. Speaking of our nation's health authorities, stat emerged showing that 363,000 vets waited a month or more to see their doctor in our VA system. And the acting VA Secretary Sloan Gibson has estimated that the price tag to fix that will be $17.6 billion. That's a lot of money, but that's a fraction of what we spend on a given weapons system over at the Pentagon. So I don't think that's out of reach. 
And uh, speaking of our nation's health authorities, part two, um, yes, we are a little disturbed to discover that uh, workers at the National Institutes of Health about a month ago discovered, well, six vials of smallpox. Supposedly, there are only two repositories of smallpox in the world, one at the CDC here in Atlanta and the other in Novosibirsk in Russia. So yeah, turning up uh, smallpox in the third location was an unpleasant surprise. The government did say that, uh, well, none of the vials had been breached and that no employees were exposed. The FBI is investigating, and I'm, I'm sure they'll get right to the bottom of it. We did like the comment uh, by uh, disease expert Michael Ulsterholm, told USA Today, the freezers of the microbiology labs of the world are a lot like the trunks in your attic. When you open them up, sometimes you're surprised. Yeah, sure, finding smallpox is analogous to going, hey, looks like Grandpa attended a Pittsburgh Pirates game back in the 20s. Of course, lost in the shuffle of this story was that the fact that there was more than just smallpox in cold storage at the NIH. The FDA said some time back that over 300 other sealed vials contained biological materials such as dengue, influenza, Q fever, rickettsia, and other possible viruses alongside those forgotten smallpox vials. The FDA commissioner has asked for a sweep of all cold storage facilities under FDA jurisdiction. Said a spokesman, we take this matter seriously and we're working to make sure it won't happen again. Oh, and by the way, of the six vials found, two were in fact found to contain live viruses. And regarding the other viruses, a somewhat uh, not reassuring statement came from Peter Marks of the Center for Biological Evaluation and Research, which was that at this point, it's not possible to say how many agents were deadly. Yeah, they may need to step it up over in our biological weapons facilities, uh, you know, a little bit. Uh, there, there was an apology made recently for a mishandling of anthrax, which I guess took place over at the CDC. Remember a couple of years back when they were going to build a biological weapons facility here in Davis, and there was a tremendous public outcry, and they decided to take it to Texas instead, which, frankly, by my reckoning, is a win-win situation. Well, they tried to argue that, no, it was just a, it was a research facility. It wasn't like a weapons, you know, they weren't like creating weapons there. Except no one's been able to explain how you draw a distinction between those two. If you're doing research on things like anthrax, well, you're kind of walking a fine line. And by the way, does anyone else besides me think it's pretty weird that we had anthrax attacks in this country that killed people back in 2001 and that the perp was never found? I mean, with all the sophisticated tests that we have available on the DNA of these, these organisms, well, it apparently was weaponized anthrax spores, which came from Fort Detrick, Maryland. So there was, it was a U.S. product. That's something we'd like to see answers to. We'd also like answers to why it is people think that they're going to deal with West Nile and other mosquito-borne viruses by blasting Sacramento County and Yolo County and a lot of counties locally here with... Pesticide. Pesticides are not specific to killing disease-carrying mosquito. They kill all bugs. It's been noted that the California Department of Public Health does not see any cause for concern, which frankly doesn't mean that there isn't any cause for concern. Apparently, a spokesperson of the vector-borne disease section was quoted in the Sacramento Bee as saying, there's no need for anyone to take special precautions in regard to aerial spraying of NOLID. Oh, NOLID is an organophosphate. And uh, organophosphates were originally developed in World War II as nerve gases. Now, it's true, the same dose that kills a mosquito won't kill a person because a person's a lot bigger. 
I know, Mr. Millen, the stuff they used in the, um, in the uh, gas chambers was, was actually cyanide. Now, the EPA has ruled that uh, Nalat is not toxic to humans. Right. It's an organophosphate poison, <laughs> but it's considered non-toxic to humans. Oh, by the way, the agency does list it as a possible carcinogen. We can only assume it's one of those non-toxic carcinogens. Remember when the public was reassured? Well, you probably don't remember, but the fact of the matter is the public was reassured uh, decades ago that DDT was perfectly fine to use. As we all know, it did, in fact, cause some environmental problems. Yeah, I love this piece in the B by Edward Ortiz talking about all this. They mentioned that one precaution would be to stay indoors during aerial spraying. By the way, we met, we talked about uh, chikungunya virus arriving in the Caribbean last j- January when Mr. Merlin and I were down there. Well, it's now jumped across uh, the sea barriers to make it to the mainland. It's here in Florida and is going to become part of the landscape now, just like West Nile. And uh, unfortunately, the mosquito that carries chikungunya bites in the daytime. So all this advice about not going out at dusk is not going to be very useful. The Edward Ortiz piece notes that a 1999 Department of Pesticide Regulation study found that urine levels in individuals that were outdoors during spraying did have higher levels of the Naled pesticide than those who were indoors during the spring. Yes, and if it is in your urine, it got into your system. And by the way, West Nile is here. It's turning up in birds, but uh, we have had no deaths last year in either Yolo or Sacramento counties due to West Nile virus. And it turns out that last year, we did have 10 confirmed human cases. How many people got it and had subclinical infections? I don't know, but I'll wager it's the vast majority. All right, let's, let's go back to obesity here, and I guess by implication died here while we, before we go to a break. We noted on last year's program that the LA Times published a study showing that the, the death toll of obesity could be higher than has been previously believed. In fact, the death toll of the nation's obesity epidemic may be close to four times higher than had been widely believed. Some demographers at Columbia University took a look and decided that 18% of premature deaths in the U.S. between 1986 and 2006 were associated with excess body mass. That estimate's far higher than the 5% toll widely cited by researchers. And the latest calculations also called into question the belief that obesity in old age confers some protection against premature death. This is the so-called obesity paradox that has given comfort to many older adults struggling to shed weight. In fact, this study concluded the probability of death among those carrying excess weight continued to rise after age 60 and did so steeply. We've gotten fat. Are we eating too much fat? Yes, we surely are. Are we eating too much sugar? Well, yes, we surely are. Are we not getting enough exercise? Yes, we surely are. But the word is apparently slow to get out. I did like the fact that uh, last year uh, when they did a study showing that mice uh, fed a diet with 25% added sugars, which is an amount consumed by many humans, noted that the females died at twice the normal rates and the males were less likely to reproduce or hold territory. The University of Utah scientists fed the mice a diet that got half its added sugars from fructose and half from glucose, which is about what's found in high fructose corn syrup. Of course, the Corn Refiners Association questioned the use of mice in the study. The trade group for the sugar industry, the Sugar Association, said the sweetener used in the study was crucial. Said a spokesman, sugar and the various formulations of high fructose corn syrup are molecularly different. 
They're not the same. Only sugar is sugar. Well, that, that may be splitting hairs. This correspondent loathes high fructose corn syrup. Although, when I was a condiment clerk working in a, uh, in a cannery back in my youth, I used to pump rail cars worth of the stuff into your ketchup. But uh, my primary objection is the funny taste it gives food and drink. Um, there are those who claim that table sugar, being 50% fructose, 50% glucose, is just not all that different from high fructose corn syrup, which is broken down something like 55-45. And you do have an alternative, dear listener, if you're worried about fructose, in that you can go out and purchase pure glucose. Mr. Merlin did this about, what, last year? It doesn't taste quite as sweet, but I think everybody seems to agree that glucose is something that you just don't have that much of a beef with compared to other sugars. Mr. Millen notes that most of his hair has now grown back. No, I'm just kidding. He had no untoward effect and neither did I. And, you know, so that, that's one option. It costs a lot more, but it's something to think about. One final item before we go to break is that as Americans get fatter and fatter, they become less concerned about their weight. Why? Because they so many other overweight people around them and don't feel so bad. We reported three years ago, and are now doing so again, that a study by the International Food Information Council Foundation showed that only 8% of Americans believe they're obese, although the actual rate is 34%. Back in 2011, David Katz, founding director of the Yale University Prevention Research Center, told WebMD.com, that uh, while most people are aware that obesity causes diabetes, heart disease, and cancer, many overweight people may simply be tired of trying and failing to lose weight. The percentage of people who say they didn't exercise rose from 37% to 43% in just one year. Said Katz, I think there's a certain element of burnout. We have not yet done a nearly good enough job of teaching people how to slim down without being hungry and miserable. Well, if you're hungry and miserable, might be time to take a break here and go get a piece of fruit. So <laughs> let's do that. Take a break, I mean. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.